We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And away we go, episode 7 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Monday, March 1st, 2021. Yes, we are back in the month of March. Remember 2020? Felt like the entire year ended up being the month of March. Incredibly, we're coming up on one year since the coronavirus ravaged this country. Let us hope that March 2021 ends up being a whole lot better than March 2020. I do believe that that will be the case, but I mean, who are we kidding It would be hard to be worse. But anyway, great to be with you for this week two of the pod. Thank you again for the continued support. Please continue to subscribe, rate, and review. Continue to let me know what you think, what you want. I am here for you. I I am your dancing monkey weekdays on this podcast, Monday through Friday. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. In fact, I got this email from a man, Francesco. He said, Good morning, Al. I hope everything finds you well. It does, Francesco. Thank you. And that you and the family are safe. I was so glad that I did not have to wait long for you to be back. I was also very appreciative of the explanation to what happened. Yes, uh, last week, last Thursday, in fact, I give you the in-depth reveal of what happened between myself and the Team 980. Francesco continues, as a listener, I can concur with the difficulty of figuring out what and when the show was available I am enjoying the current consistency like yourself. Weirdly, and this is the best part, 
This yearning for consistency must be why the opening show song is starting to grow on me. So we have a fan, at least one fan, of the intro music uh, to this podcast. But keep the feedback coming. Uh, again, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com is how you can email me. Lots to do on today's show, including a very special guest, Brent, a.k.a. Burgundy Blog, will be joining me on the show in just a bit. Those of you who are Washington football fans, which is the majority of you listening to this podcast, you likely are familiar with Burgundy Blog. He is someone who you need to follow if you're not following on Twitter. Some of the best, smartest tweets, observations on the team are provided by Burgundy Blog. He and I have corresponded now for a few years, but this is not a guy who talks often. You know, he's kind of mysterious, and I was thrilled when he agreed to come on the podcast here. So, Burgundy Blog, we get into everything in our conversation. You know, the extent to which you should be optimistic as a fan, Dan Snyder, the new look front office, the quarterback situation, what to do with Brandon Sheriff, what are the needs truly for this team this offseason. Lots of stuff with Brent, aka Burgundy Blog. That's coming up in just a bit. We have news regarding Dan Snyder's willingness to potentially sell the Washington football team. I'll get to that in just a few minutes. And we, of course, have the DC Sports Weekend that was to unpack two big wins for the Capitals, a win and a gut-wrenching loss for the Wizards. Another big win for Maryland. The Turges are surging right now. Uh, Wins for Georgetown and Virginia Tech. And yes, the first spring training games taking place on Sunday. The Nationals and Orioles underway. I'm going to get to what matters the most from all of those games over the course of this podcast. But I do need to tell you about something before we truly get going here. And that is another podcast that I'm now a part of. Uh, Yes, I I am becoming like podcast promiscuous here. I I can't just keep myself to one podcast. I cannot be monogamous when it comes to my podcasting. But anyway, when I first announced this podcast on Twitter, I said I have not one but two announcements I'm going to be making over the course of the next few weeks. Announcement number one was the Al Galdi podcast. Announcement number two, which happened on Friday, was the Nats Chat podcast that I'm doing with Mark Zuckerman. And basically, what this is, is a hardcore, in-depth podcast on the Washington Nationals. The truth is, for too long, Nats fans have been underserved. And honestly, that's never been the case more than it is now with these massive cutbacks that Masson made uh, a few weeks back, where you're going to be having mere 15-minute pregame and postgame shows this season for Nats games on Masson. It's a joke. It's ridiculous. Washington, D.C. deserves better. It's time that you as a Nats fan get better. So myself and Mark Zuckerman, who of course has covered the Nats for years for MassInSports.com, we're going to be doing a podcast after every Nationals game in the regular season. It's essentially a post-game pod. The morning after every Nats game, you'll be waking up to like a 20-25 minute conversation about what happened in the game, what's going on with the Nats. The season has not yet begun, but the podcast has. Over the course of the month of March, we're going to be doing two episodes per week. We're looking right now at Mondays and Thursdays for these episodes to be dropped. Uh, The first of those episodes is being dropped uh, on this Monday, so check it out. The Nats Chat Podcast with myself and Mark Zuckerman. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts, wherever you get this podcast. So, you know, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever the case may be, and let us know what you think. But if you're a Nats fan, that is an absolute must listen, if I may say so. 
And on this podcast, we will, of course, talk Nationals, and we will talk Orioles. You know, it's funny. I've got a lot of requests from you guys to talk O's. We're going to talk O's a little bit later on in this podcast. My chat with Brent, a.k.a. Burgundy Blog, in just a bit. But let's begin on this Monday with the latest on the Danny. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes, thank you, Danny. I appreciate that very much. So things that happen on Fridays almost always end up getting buried. I mean, that's not just true in sports. That's true in news, right? I mean, in politics, if you want to bury something, put it out on a Friday, especially late on a Friday, and chances are people will never even hear about it. Anyway, this past Friday, ESPN NFL insider Adam Schefter went on the Michael K show on ESPN New York. And Schefter ended up being asked, about Dan Snyder potentially selling the Washington football team, right? Given this Beth Wilkinson investigation, the findings for which we are still awaiting. And Schefter said regarding Danny potentially selling the Washington football team, quote, he's got no plans and no intent to sell that franchise ever, end quote. Now, this is not like a stunner or anything like that. It's been pretty consistently said that Dan has no intent on selling the team. I would say, you know, never, ever, ever is one of those things that is never, ever, ever until it's not never, ever, ever. Remember, Danny in May 2013 famously told USA Today regarding the name, quote, we'll never change the name. It's that simple. Never. You can use caps and quote. And of course, here we are. And the name now is the Washington football team, at least temporarily. So never can not always end up going on forever. But for now, never is where we're at. And I bring this up because off the Jeff Bezos conversation that we had a bunch last week on this podcast, off the want that basically every fan of the Washington football team has had for years for Dan Snyder to sell the team, it needs to be understood he has zero intention of selling the team. And the only way Dan Snyder is not going to be majority owner for the Washington football team moving forward is if he is forcibly removed as majority owner of the football team. And the means by which that would happen, of course, would be scandal. And that's why the findings of this Beth Wilkinson investigation matter so much. It is notable, right, how long this is taking. You know, this investigation was launched in the summer when the Washington Post put out those reports regarding the sexual harassment scandal. I've got to think by now the investigation is done. You do wonder why the results of the investigation have not yet been made public. And one of the things that's crossed my mind, and and maybe it has yours too, is the reason the findings haven't been made public yet is because there are negotiations going on where maybe the NFL is talking with Dan about what he's going to do about these findings. You know, you have to wonder. The investigation was launched in July 2020. Today is March 1st, 2021. We still have heard nothing in terms of the findings of the investigation. The investigation has got to be complete. So what exactly is going on here in terms of why the findings have not yet been made public? The only thing I can think of here is they're negotiating. They're talking about this is what we found. This is what we, i.e. the league, want. You tell us what you're going to do about it. But specific to this notion of what if Danny were to be forcibly removed as majority owner, it comes down, I think, not so much to what transpired under Danny's ownership. Because I think even if stuff ends up being worse than we thought, I still don't know that that results in him being ousted as owner. We'll see. I mean, I guess it would depend on how bad the stuff ends up being. But let's assume that Beth Wilkinson doesn't find anything that much more egregious than what the Washington Post has already reported. And what the Post has reported is bad enough. Let's make that crystal clear. 
But, you know, like you, you wonder about sexual harassment, like is there a sexual assault in there somewhere? Is, is there something along those lines? So let, let's assume for the moment Beth Wilkinson doesn't find anything like that. The way for Danny to be ousted as owner would have to be because he himself is guilty of bad behavior. And regarding that, there are three allegations regarding Dan Snyder that have come out from these Washington Post reports. And out of all the things to wonder about with the Beth and Wilkinson investigation, this is, I think, the most pertinent, is what ends up happening with these allegations regarding Dan Snyder. So the first two allegations came in that second major article from the Washington Post on the sexual harassment scandal. That article came out last August 26. And the gist of that article was 25 women, most of them speaking on the condition of anonymity, because of the non-disclosure agreements or fear of reprisal, telling the Post that they experienced sexual harassment while working for the team. But there was a lot more to that report than just that. And maybe the biggest item in that article was the direct implication of Dan Snyder, who was not directly implicated in that first Post article that came out in July. One of the women, a former cheerleader, Tiffany Bacon Scourby, accused Dan of having approached her at a 2004 charity event at which the cheerleaders were performing and suggesting that she join his close friend in a hotel room so they, quote, could get to know each other better, end quote. Scourby's account was supported by three friends she spoke to directly afterward about the alleged incident, including the team's former cheerleader director. Dan also was implicated in that article via the Beauties on the Beach video allegation. Remember, that was the one that evolved... Larry Michael. Brad Baker was a producer in the team's broadcast department 2007 to 2009. He alleged that the taping of Beauties on the Beach, which was this official video chronicling the making of the uh, Washington football team's 2008 cheerleader swimsuit calendar, and this is something the team used to promote big time, uh, that that making of the video included the taping of another video intended strictly for private use that featured moments when nipples were inadvertently exposed as the women shifted positions or adjusted props. The lewd outtakes were what Larry Michael per Baker referred to as the good bits or the good parts. And Baker said that Michael told staffers to make the video for Dan Snyder. Michael adamantly denies the allegation. And then implication number three of the Danny came from the New York Times in an article that came out this past December 20th, that article referenced an allegation that Dan Snyder had sexually harassed a former female team employee in 2009. The Washington Post, a couple of days later, reported that a financial settlement for $1.6 million was what had been reached between Dan and the accuser, and that the alleged incident had occurred on Dan's private plane while flying back from the Academy of Country Music Awards in Las Vegas. Now, it's worth saying that there were two investigations done into this, one by the team, another by an outside law firm hired by the team. And the two investigations conducted said that they were unable to substantiate the woman's claim that Dan had accosted her. The team actually ended up firing the woman because it said she lied to the team's lawyers. But this settlement was reached. So these are the three things regarding Dan and the sexual harassment scandal, right? I mean, everything has to do with Dan because he's been the owner. He's presided over all of this. But in terms of things directly linked to Dan, allegations specifically involving the Danny, these are the three things. And out of all that we hope to gain from the Beth Wilkinson investigation, after all, uh, out of all the things that could come from the Beth Wilkinson investigation, 
These are, I think, the three most pertinent things regarding the future of the ownership of the Washington football team. These three allegations regarding Dan Snyder. What does Beth Wilkinson find regarding those allegations? Does Beth Wilkinson validate those claims? Does Beth Wilkinson perhaps uncover other alleged incidents involving Dan Snyder? Because if the latter ends up being the case, and instead of being three allegations that have come up against Danny, it ends up being, you know, I don't know, four or five. And, you know, these latest ones end up being even more serious than the ones that are already out there. Then I think you really do start to wonder about how can the NFL continue to have this guy as a majority owner? But beyond that, it's going to be difficult to oust him as majority owner, especially if Wilkinson doesn't add anything more to these allegations. I mean, remember with these things, the first one goes back to 2004. The videos one goes back to the era of like 2007, 2009. And then the latest one goes back uh, also to 2009. So these are not alleged recent things. It doesn't mean that they're not serious or shouldn't be looked into. But, you know, especially when you're talking about things that allegedly happened more than a decade ago, it does become hard to substantiate them. It does become hard to say, well, we know with certainty this happened. You know, it may just end up being a he said, she said forever on these things. So that to me is what to be thinking about when it comes to the Wilkinson investigation and off the Jeff Bezos stuff of last week, off the desire that everyone listening to this podcast has likely had over the course of time, that is for the Danny to be ousted as owner. This is what you're looking at here. He's got no intention to sell the team. I don't believe that that's going to change anytime soon. The way for him to be ousted, the way for the Danny coup to take place is for these allegations to be truly substantiated and or heightened and or for more allegations to come to the fore. And we'll see with this Beth Wilkinson investigation, whenever the findings are revealed, what ends up becoming of all of that. You know, it's becoming almost like the Mueller report, if you remember. That thing took forever uh, to finally be made public. And the Wilkinson investigation is kind of going the same way right now. And again, I go back to this, like, why is that? What's going on behind the scenes here? Because the, the investigation, you've got to think, is is done, right? I mean, the phone calls have been made. The conversations have been had. So what's the holdup? What's going on that we don't know about to where we're at March 1st off this thing having been launched last July and the findings still haven't been made public? Something to think about. All right, let's get to our special guest. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. All right, very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast right now, a special guest. You did not hear him speak often, but he has chosen to speak on this podcast. He's one of the smartest and most insightful people when it comes to opining on the Washington football team. He is a must-follow on Twitter. If you're a Washington football team fan, he is the mysterious, the enigmatic Brent, a.k.a. Burgundy Blog. It is great to have you on, man. How are you? Jeez, good. I'm good. What a, what a lead-up. <laughs> Thanks, Al. Yeah, long time, first time. Absolutely, man. It's, uh, you know, we have communicated many times over the years, but this is, and I've heard your voice and I know you've heard mine. So, but this is the first time we've actually spoken. So uh, I'm looking forward to this. So people, of course, know you best from Twitter at Burgundy Blog. Uh, There's also the podcast, though, the Burgundy Blogcast. I know you haven't done that since last May. Any hopes of that starting up again? I know real life can get in the way with that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, real life is busy. Um, the pot is kind of in limbo. Uh, I think there's a chance that it'll be back sometime, but um, TBD. I don't, I don't have the date. It may not be, may not be right around the corner. But I, I did enjoy 
doing the pod. There are six seasons of uh, Burgundy Blogcast in the archive, so I think that there probably will be a seventh at some point. Excellent, excellent. Look forward to that. And at one point, there was an actual Burgundy blog, correct? But there's no longer a Burgundy blog? Yeah, those were the days. I think that was on Tumblr. Oh, is that right? Nice. Nice. Um, Yeah, when I started doing stuff, you know, online with the – Washington football team, as it were. That was uh, 2010. So there have been a few different iterations of Burgundy Blog. Wow. Okay. Very good. All right. So let's get into the team because I know a lot of people are anxious to hear what you have to say. So I, and I was thinking about how I want to start this. And I guess we'll do some macro stuff first. I, I know for me, one of the biggest challenges of being a fan of this team is like, you don't want to be a sap, you know, like you want to be optimistic. You want to believe that the best is yet to come and success is around the corner. But you know, the truth is, if you've been a pessimist over the last 25 years, you, you've been right for it more often than you've been wrong. There's obviously optimism with the franchise now. I, and, and I know I'm optimistic. What are you thinking? Where are you in terms of the optimism right now of your one with Ron Rivera? Um, well, first, I can, I can pretty uh, honestly and confidently say that I am at very low risk of succumbing to... Um, the hype. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I think I pretty long ago was in large part emotionally divorced um, from from the Redskins and now the WFT. Um, my my interest now is, I mean, perhaps I'm starting to develop again some positive sentiment, but um, I think you know right now I'm I'm most invested in them out of uh, curiosity and um, and for the sake of of uh, analyzing and investigating, you know how how a good football team is run and, and how a bad one uh, is or is not. And um, I think that uh, I was I was as low on the team as anyone for a really long time, as recently as last summer. Uh, in fact, I stopped tweeting and doing all yeah. um, yeah. Burgundy blog type stuff for a pretty long time. And I wasn't sure, honestly, how, when or in what capacity I would jump back. But over the course of the season, I realized that as, as much as I still uh, absolutely detest um, some of the things about the um, organization, including the guy at the top. Um, there's obviously a lot to like right now. And I started to realize that I, I can, you know, I respect and I can get behind and I can, um, feel comfortable being represented by Ron Rivera and some of these young players like McLaurin and Young and John Allen. I mean, it was a team that I grew to, you know, be fond of again, after a long, uh, a long period of not really feeling that way. So I think that, um, you know, I, I think that maybe the, the fan base is possibly getting a little ahead of itself in, in assuming that, like, right now is the beginning of a two- to three-year Super Bowl window. Um, I, think there, I, think the, I think the team really, really benefited last year from playing a slate almost devoid of um, elite quarterback talent. Yeah. And so I'm not really sure that this is a 7-9 and nine team uh, in the sense that, that, I, that you would typically, you know, think, think of one. Uh, they might be, a, I don't know that they're necessarily ahead of schedule. I think they're probably on schedule and I'm hopeful, but I feel like there's, we're probably still a year or two away from, you know, even in the best case scenario, um, hoping to make real, real noise. So you would not say we are close as our friend Bruce, once said. Still not. Still okay. not. No, Bruce, Bruce is still wrong. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, speaking of Brucey, uh, regarding the new look front office, Kyle Smith out, Marty Herney, Martin Mayhew, Chris Polian in. I, I know my stance is kind of twofold. I, I think Ron should do as he sees fit, but I think when it comes to the Kyle Smith thing, it's kind of like you better be right because Kyle Smith helped you do these last four drafts. And to me, this four draft stretch, this is as good as it's been since the days of Bobby Beathard. But 
What is your stance on these changes to the front office over the last few months? Yeah, um, I, I agree with what you said. I guess uh, you better be right. I mean, to to a degree, that's that's always true in in his line of work, and uh, you know, there's never a long leash. Um, I, I think maybe I was a little less married to Kyle Smith than than the average um, Washington fan. Not not because there was really much bad to be said about him, um, but I, I guess philosophically, I, I always wonder how much we really know about um, how much and. And in, in what way any any executive or scout or GM type person in the NFL really is responsible for a given draft pick or right. a draft class. Yeah. And so it, it certainly seems, I mean, we've heard nothing but good things from other people about Kyle Allen. And I, I think, I don't have any reason to believe he isn't a really sharp eye for talent. And maybe he will one day be a good GM. I'm not sure that I'm, you know, I, I'm just not sure that he did anything that, that's, that said that, you know, Rivera was taking such a huge risk in letting him go. I just, I guess maybe I'm a little bit more agnostic. I think if he wasn't super comfortable and very clearly aligned, uh, Ron, I mean, if, if he was not so closely tied with um, Kyle Smith after the one year that, you know, he felt it was a perfect marriage, then I, I think it's well within his prerogative to move on. And, um, you know, I, I also think I'm a little bit less worried about him finding people he's familiar with and some others. I mean, I think that's what you do. I mean, he has to be uh, comfortable and familiar with the guys that he's, you know, that he's doing this with. Uh, you know, I, I think that uh, he, he I feel he earned the benefit of the doubt on that one over the course of his first year. Yeah, no, I, I think that's totally fair. And I tell you, going back to the owner, seeing how things have gone for Ron's predecessors regarding the owner, I don't think it hurts Ron at all. And I do think there is a little bit of a strategy of surround yourself with allies and friends and almost like, you know, build up your army, you know, like Ron's army so that it never becomes a situation where Dan has on his side, those who are supposed to be on your side, you know, that kind of a thing. So I I could see the motivation to have people, you know, and trust as opposed to Kyle Smith, who predated you with the organization, you know, Kyle was more of a Bruce guy and maybe is more of a Dan guy than a Ron guy. I mean, it sucks that we have to talk like this about these inner office politics, but we all know that's been a reality with this franchise. Totally. Uh, great point. Completely agree. And I think that, um, you know, there's, there's, I guess the, the, um, perhaps a little concerned by some that, uh, he's adding too many uh, chefs or cooks to the kitchen, but, I feel in this particular case that the more experience he can add to that front office, um, the more credibility and the more credibility, the more insulated he potentially is from the owner if he decides to get frisky. So yeah. I feel like yeah. this team more than some others, um, I, I can follow the logic and I'm cool with loading up the loading up the office. Talking with Brent, a.k.a. Burgundy blog here on the Al Galdi podcast. So the quarterback situation, it's what we all discuss. It's what we all think about. Uh, who do you like? What do you want? Um, well, I do hope that, that they'll add um, somebody to the room. And I do think, like most do at this point, that they're probably going to subtract Alex Smith. Um, much thanks to Alex Smith, by the way, for what he did last year. I mean, he made it a memorable season for us and uh, um, proved me as wrong as anyone was. I mean, I thought I certainly thought he had no chance of coming back at all or doing what he did. Um, that was a good run, but I think probably that that... that 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 chapter is going to come to an end, and um, um, I'm I think I'm pretty wide open to um, the the different um, strategies that they could employ to to add um, a potential starter, uh, whether it be draft or a, a trade or or somebody who's a free agent. I guess if you asked me to pick um, my faves, um, 
or my horses in this race right now from among the, the current veterans who may be available. I like Mariota. And um, recently, uh, in looking at some of the first-round type draft uh, options, uh, I like Trey Lance a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I think if they could figure out a way to swing either of those, that could potentially excite me. Yeah, I'm with you on Lance. And I know the sample size isn't large, but the skill set is there. And it kind of feels like I mean, I don't know that he drops to 19, but maybe he drops to, say, 14 or 15, and you can make a realistic trade-up to get him. Going back to Alex Smith, though, for a moment, because I know one of the first tweets you put out there when you came back from your hiatus had to do with Alex and, you know, your sort of Alex confession, you know, like I was wrong about Alex. And I know I've wrestled with this, and I know I'm not the only one, where it's like, on the one hand, the numbers tell you something about Alex, and that is that he's just not that good. And then on the other hand... There's this impossible to quantify aspect of him, you know, the five and one record this past season, the way he's talked about in this like godlike way by his teammates. How do you reconcile that? Where like the the facts, the data tells you it's not just that he's mediocre. I mean, like his numbers for this past season were really bad. And yet on the other hand, the record's good. The way he's spoken of is good. And very clearly the offense with Alex was at a level that it was not at with, you know, certainly Dwayne Haskins and has not been at with others over the last few years. How how do you sort of uh, grapple with that? It is tough. I mean, what an interesting influence he's had on the team. It's unbelievable that sometimes he looks so pedestrian or worse. And yet, you know, he's been the only individual who seems capable of um, lifting the team to uh, anything above mediocrity. Um, I, I, I'll say this, Al, I, I look at his value to the um, to Washington uh, this past season uh, a little differently. I, coming into the season, I thought that really the, the most important and arguably the only important thing about 2020, um, much more so than their record ultimately, was getting the rebuild off on the right foot, setting setting a foundation, setting you know expectations and standards for the culture that should be defining the team and organization for many years to come. And so I wasn't so worried about how many wins and they ultimately won, you know, probably twice as many games as I thought that they would. Um, and that's great, but not, you know, not, um, not really make or break. I think that the reason he was so much more useful on the roster and on the team this year than I expected him to be was because of the influence he had on setting that culture. I mean, I really, yeah. I don't know why in retrospect, it probably should have occurred to me, but he was more than just like the best option for, you know, however many weeks during the year. He was, I think, um, I mean, a true, a true leader to the young players. I think it, it felt like he was the heartbeat at, at, you know, for long stretches and um, including even, even in the, in the uh, perspective, at least as far as I can tell of, of the, the most important young players in the team. I mean, the way Chase Young talked about him, the way McLaurin talked about him, if, if those guys were on board with him and following him and, um, you know, willing to go to war with him and for him, then you know that the all 53 were right there. And um, it just, it really seemed like the, um, the way he taught them to win and to play and to, you know, to, to practice and study and fight um, was huge. I think that he, you know, even if, even if he's not on the team tomorrow, he um, really, that, that is, that is a great legacy to have left at the beginning of the, the Rivera era. And, uh, it was huge. So, I mean, I'm, I'm grateful for that. He had a, absolutely had a positive influence on the team, you know, even though he wasn't able to play in the playoffs. And yet, despite all that, and everything you say is true, but Ron Rivera himself has not really spoken of Alex in that way. So much so that we had those Alex comments to GQ.com that came out last week, which I, I took, I don't know about you, as a strike back at Ron for all the, the little 
not so much digs at Alex, but I mean, Ron has been totally non-committal toward Alex. It, it has not felt for a while now like Ron is overly enthused about having Alex back. There's that now famous response where Ron gets asked late in the season about, would you be here if not for Alex? And he says, yeah, if Kyle Allen had stayed healthy. What do you make of that, the, the Ron Rivera-Alex Smith dynamic? Very interesting. And yes, I agree, by the way, that that comment, um, when, when he answered that question that, yeah, we probably still would have been here if Kyle Allen hadn't gotten hurt. I totally think that that was a remarkable comment. Yeah. It was a softball type question that he could have answered in any number of very neutral ways. And I don't, I wouldn't blame Alex Smith one bit for being kind of peeved by that. I don't think many people could have done what Alex did um, in terms of, of coming back and then, you know, energizing the, the team. But I do think many, many people could have played quarterback as well as he did. Uh, perhaps many, many is an exaggeration, but um, no, he just wasn't special, you know, in terms of uh, he wasn't he wasn't even as protective and careful with the football in several games that he played as he, right. you know, traditionally has been, which is his calling card. Yeah. Um, it, it was it's 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 weird. It's almost inexplicable that they uh, had such a good record when he was playing. Um, I don't I, I think it's I don't know how Ron feels about him, obviously, I and mean, I don't have a direct line, but I'm encouraged and glad to hear that. Rivera seems very realistic about what Alex was. He doesn't need to be an idol right now. He needs to be thanked for his contribution. And then it's very appropriate that he realizes they need much, much better if they're going to be taken seriously. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good point. It it is sobering that Ron isn't getting caught up in all the gaga. And like he sees Alex for what he was and he sees their quarterback situation for what it is. So we brought up Kyle Allen. There's also, of course, Taylor Heineke. To what extent do you view them as viable options for 2021 and maybe beyond? I wouldn't be shocked at all if he um, decides that no addition is so necessary that he can't go into the year with them. But I I would be pretty surprised if in private he believes that either one of those is going to be the guy to lead the team for the next few years. Um, Heineke, you know, I I had done a little bit of research on him before I ever even played a game for this team. And actually, you know, I wanted him to play sooner than he did. I was one of the people on Twitter who was calling for Haskins to be um, benched or otherwise removed before Ron eventually even did pull the trigger. And I, I wasn't blown away that Heineke had a great game. I mean, I think if he if you play that game, that, that, that game against Tampa 10 times, I don't think he's going to do better that, than that in any of the other nine. Yeah. I mean, I think he, yeah. you know, things, things just came together, and it was awesome. It was awesome to watch. And, he, he, you know, there's a role for Heineke, but um, I don't think the entire league has been wrong about him for these five years since he came out of college. Like, he's small, he's fragile, um, he takes some risks. And I think, you know, I, I like that he's on the team. And, yeah, he deserves a, a chance. But um, it just seems pretty clear that, that uh, you know, that Rivera knows he's neither one of these is the ultimate solution. Do you wish they had tried harder to trade for Matthew Stafford? Or are you glad they didn't ante up the way the Rams ended up anting up to get Stafford? I, I like I love I love Stafford actually I've always admired him from afar and I was excited to, to hear that they were interested I, I think they tried about as I think they tried appropriately hard to get him yeah I mean you know he's he's not foolproof and I, even even in McVay's offense with a really good um, defense and supporting cast over there I don't think it's a slam dunk that he's going to lead them to the promised land they offered you know by most accounts what first a third maybe maybe a player or something I mean that's pretty legit yeah um, yeah I, I think it's it's good that they were willing to to swing hard but 
this was not an all, all, you know uh, Stafford or bust situation for me. Yeah, I agree, and especially when he revealed he dealt with a torn UCL, albeit in his non-throwing elbow, but he, he revealed to Mitch Album like all these different injuries he had last year, and I know he plays in 16 games, but man, that body has taken a beating yeah. in his yeah. career. So you have to wonder about that. All right, some non-quarterback stuff. Uh, Brandon Sheriff, what do you want to see happen with that situation this offseason? I certainly hope they can sign him. Uh, I, I mean, what's not to like about him uh, other than than maybe his um, his injury history? Um, I don't know that, you know, he, he's a, he's fresh off a first-team All-Pro nod, which is great. Is he the best, you know, or, or one of the best two or three guards in the NFL? I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I'm, I feel like, you know, he's he, he has the odd penalty, and um, every once in a while you see him getting beaten. I think he's a good player. I think he's uh, – an A-plus in the locker room, and it's the kind of guy you want on your team. But I also don't feel like um, there is literally no choice, and if they can't get a deal done, they got to throw $18 million at him. I mean, that's such an absurd amount to be yeah. playing. Let's face it, probably, as much as I believe every position on the football field is important, if you had to pick the least important on an offense, it might be right guard. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not the end of the world if they can't figure this out. And um if they can't, for whatever reason, whether he just wants to live somewhere else or someone's willing to pay him much, much more, uh, you know, it would be nice if they could get something for him. Um, I don't know how realistic a tag and trade is, but I think, you know, it seems like he's probably going to be around. There's a lot of reporting that um, uh, that they're going to tag him if they have to. I mean, I think I heard John Clayton say that. Maybe a lot of credible people think they would tag him again. I think a second tag on a right guard, when you consider that guards are, you know, lumped in, as you know, with tackles, uh, for the franchise number, I mean it's madness. Two, yeah. two tags on a guard, like they, if, if they were gonna, if they were gonna keep him, they should have figured it out sooner. I'm totally with you. Uh, if they're gonna tag him, they need to tag him for the purpose of trading him, or, or for the purpose of getting a long term deal done. But you know, even then, he could sign the tender. I, I just, to me, him playing for them second straight season under the terms of a franchise tag—that's the worst case scenario. That we, we all saw what happened with the Kirk situation. That, that's a one-way ticket to overpaying someone and then that guy walking. Either tag and trade him or get the long-term deal done. I mean, they, they have the cap room to do it. It's not like they can't pay him the $15, 16000000 million a year that he wants. It's just a question of do you want to pay a guard that kind of money, especially a guard going into his 30s now with his injury history. And if they want to, fine. But, you know, like you said, if they don't, I mean, we've seen it here the last few years. Eric Flowers, Wes Schweitzer, you can find competent guard play on the cheap. And I might feel differently if this was more like a Super Bowl or bust kind of year. Yeah. Um, if, if, if it seemed like he could put them over the top. But it's totally not. I mean, we're still in, you know, they're, they're definitely in rebuild year two mode. So to sign to, to pay him a huge sum for what, what is probably only going to be one more year, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. Beyond quarterback, what's the position you view as most in need of being upgraded this offseason? Um... It's interesting when when the um, the defense is considered to be of, of the you know between offense and defense probably this the, the greater well definitely the greater strength of the team as it's currently constructed that I kind of feel like a like a really good fast strong rangy linebacker is uh, extremely necessary um, but also they um, they they they're going to need um, somebody else obviously for uh, this this new quarterback or whichever one to throw the ball to. So for me, it's either um, a a stud middle linebacker or a number one or one B type receiver. With the defense, were we guilty of overrating it as last season went on? I mean, I, I was singing its praises. You know, the the gigantic improvement from twenty nineteen to twenty twenty. 
And then we saw what we saw against Tampa Bay. I mean, that was a very disappointing performance. It was against the eventual Super Bowl champion. It was against the greatest quarterback of all time. What do you think is the right way to view where this defense is at right now? I think they did probably become a little bit overrated. Number one, because it's just, it's not common for the, the light the light bulb to just switch on so discreetly in the middle of the season and for a, a defense to go from as bad as they were, and they were so bad in the yeah. first half, to developing this top five reputation at the end. I mean, the, the reality is that all along they were probably somewhere closer to the average of those two perceptions. Um, also, you know, I, I mentioned before, and I still feel like a huge uh, influence on the season for them was that they they will have, they, they may never in the next 10 or 20 years play as bad a, a set of quarterbacks <laughs> that they did this year. I mean, both in and out of the division, they almost never faced anybody scary. And um, that can, I think, obviously make a defense look a lot better than it really is. Yeah, no, they benefited from that. Uh, there's no doubt about that. I, I guess what what swayed me, and, and, you know, maybe it's shame on me, but they didn't just dominate some of those quarterbacks. They just completely just ravaged them. You know, some of these sack totals they put up, you know, the, the thing they had going as the season went on where they weren't allowing any points in the second halves of these games, I mean, it was really odd. In the first halves, the defense would look kind of pedestrian, and then, like, every second half, the defense would end up making plays and doing the things you needed to do to win. But, yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, the defense got humbled in that Bucks game. There's, there's no two ways about it. So it's better, but it's not at that level you want it to be at yet, for sure. Don't get me wrong. Good, good defense. I mean, obviously the front is legit. I just wonder, you know, when you want to talk about a – um, a great defense or top five yeah. defense or whatever. When you look through the rest of the starters there, there wasn't a lot in the secondary that you would you would think of as, you know, well, shut down corner or the enforcer safety. And then everyone agrees that they're really missing a lot of linebackers. So it's really one one level of the defense was top notch. And the rest, I think there's some room for improvement. Final moments with Brent, a.k.a. Burgundy blog here on the Al Galdi podcast. I want to get back to kind of a bigger picture view. So we have, of course, these three massive off-the-field stories ongoing for our team. You've got the name change, you've got the sexual harassment scandal, and you got the ownership turmoil. Which story do you think years from now, like five, ten years from now, we'll look back upon as being the most significant? All three are significant. What's kind of your sense on which one ultimately is going to prove to be the biggest of the bunch? I think that uh, the answer will obviously depend on what comes of the Wilkinson report and if there's some action in the ownership. I mean, if uh, a couple of years from now, Dan Snyder's no longer the guy, then that's the biggest thing of the you know, 20, 30, 40 years probably. Yeah. I mean, the name change is humongous. Um, personally, it, it did. I mean, I'll be honest, it, it, it bothered me. I'm still reeling from it a little bit. Um, yeah, I, I get that it's complicated and there's there's reasons for it, but uh, it hurt. It hurt me as someone you know who's been really in on 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 them and spent so much time reading that word Redskins for so long. Um, but there was a degree of inevitability to to that. I think for me for for a long time. So um, although it happened fairly abruptly, it, it wasn't a total shocker. If if something leads to Dan Snyder no longer being the owner of the team, it will be the best thing that's happened to them since I started watching football probably yeah and um i hope that that becomes the biggest thing that's going on right now final question with dan i did this on the radio a while back and it was interesting some of the answers i got do you think there's any way that he could ever rehab his image to wear not that he's beloved but that he's viewed at least neutrally in terms of the fan base like like obviously he's essentially reviled and has been for years 
if they became really good, do you think that that would bump things up to where people would be like, you know what, he's not that bad? Or, or do you think he's just always going to be viewed essentially the way he's viewed now? Well, um, I think um, I don't think that making himself more known or inserting himself into the picture to a greater degree can ever win because he just. So um, it's going to require basically less of him. And I mean, yeah, actually, that might seem strange because he's been kind of a recluse. But in terms of decision making and his influence on how the team is built, um, it's going to require him disappearing, letting Rivera and co make every decision. And then, of course, the team winning. And I mean, if that happens, um, I think people will forget how much they hated him. And I think that he could get back pretty close to neutral. Yeah. Um, You know, a Lombardi trophy would go a long, long way to making people forgive and forget. Um, But you're absolutely right. I mean, he has decades of um, of the opposite of goodwill. I mean, he's been building up antipathy for basically since he got started. Uh, It's a long road to hoe. I don't expect it. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, they would have to get really, really good. Um, I think for people to forget how bad he's been. Yeah, no, there's no question that would be the biggest item uh, towards that goal. Man, I appreciate you coming on so much, and uh, hopefully we can do this again at some point. At Burgundy Blog on Twitter, like I said, an absolute must-follow if you're a Washington football team fan. All the best, man. Thank you. Thanks, Alan. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're back on uh, glad you're back on the airwaves. Thank you. Yeah, great to, great to have your support on this, man. Appreciate it. All right, so let's get into our Washington, D.C. sports weekend that was. And let us begin with the Capitals. Two more wins for the Caps over the weekend. Saturday afternoon, a 5-2 win at the New Jersey Devils. Sunday afternoon, a 3-2 win at the New Jersey Devils. The Caps continue to roll. They are alone in first atop the East Division at 28 points. Two points ahead of both the Boston Bruins and the New York Islanders. Both of those teams won on Sunday. Bruins 4-1 at the New York Rangers. The Islanders 2-0 over the Pittsburgh Penguins. But the Caps now 3-0-0 in the second halves of back-to-back games this season. And the Caps have gone from winless in afternoon games this season, 0-3-2, to now 3-3-2 in afternoon games on the year. So what had been a bugaboo for the Caps, the matinee game, is a bugaboo no more. Two matinee wins at the Devils over the weekend. And how about this regarding those two games? The Caps won them despite being without one of their best players. No Evgeny Kuznetsov for each of those games due to an upper body injury. Peter Laviolette over the two games has Lars Eller as the top center. Nicholas Backstrom as the second line center. TJ Oshie was back to blank center. He was the third line center. And Nick Dowd was the fourth line center. So, you know, one of the themes for the Caps so far this year has been they have played a good number of games without key guys, right? Kuznetsov, Alex Ovechkin, Dmitry Orlov, Ilya Samsonov all missed time due to COVID-19 protocols. Dustin Schultz missed time due to injury. Others have had to miss games at various points. And yet the Caps, here they are, 12-5-4, and 21 games into the season. Specific to the game on Sunday, the 3-2 win at the Devils. Great production from the top six forwards. Uh, The three goals coming from top six players, Jacob Vrana, Nicholas Backstrom, and Alex Ovechkin. The Vrana goal got things going. Even strength goal, 15-39 into the first period. The defenseman, Brendan Dillon, off a defensive zone faceoff win by Backstrom. And by the way, that was another positive from Sunday. The Caps were excellent on faceoffs, 37-18, 
but Backstrom wins the defensive zone faceoff. Dylan sends the puck from the boards near the right corner deep into the neutral zone. Great pass by Dylan to Tom Wilson near the blue line. Wilson quickly gets the puck to Vrana. Vrana is denied on an initial shot from the high slot, but then deposits his own rebound from the right circle near the low slot. Vrana has been very productive so far this year. In fact, he's tied with Backstrom for the most even strength goals on the Caps at seven. Speaking of Backstrom, he struck again. Uh, Even strength goal, 232 into the second period on Sunday. Giveaway by the Devils in the Caps defensive zone leads to a two-on-one breakaway for Backstrom and Wilson. Backstrom scores on a shot in the crease. How about the season Backstrom has had so far? Number one on the Caps with 25 points. He's got 10 goals and 15 assists. And then the great eight strikes. Even strength goal, 13-37 into the second period. Ovi scoring from the high slot on a three-on-two breakaway. Just his second goal in nine games, but another one of these goals that has him climbing a whole bunch of lists. The goal is number 713 in the regular season career of Alex Ovechkin. So he's now within four of Phil Esposito for number six on the NHL all, the NHL's all-time goals list. And also, how about this, Ovechkin? Uh, that goal was the 362nd of his career in the regular season on the road, tying him with Steve Eiserman for the second most regular season road goals in NHL history. Wayne Gretzky's at number one at 402. So Vrana scores, Backstrom scores, Ovechkin scores. It was a second straight productive game two for the Caps top defense pairing of John Carlson and Brendan Dillon. They accounted for two of the Caps top six five on five shot attempt percentages in the game per natural stat trick. And each guy was also really good in that 5-2 win at the Devils on Saturday afternoon. Carlson in that game, in fact, had the best 5-on-5 shot attempt percentage uh, per natural stat trick and had two assists. And among the assists was an outstanding primary assist on another goal for Vrana. Vrana on Saturday had a third period even strength goal for a 4-2 Caps lead. Carlson in traffic, able to corral the puck outside of the left circle in the Caps defensive zone, and then pass the puck to a streaking Vrana in the neutral zone, and Vrana with that great speed scoring on what became a one-on-none breakaway. And then Dylan on Saturday, third best five-on-five shot attempt percentage in the game per natural stat trick, and he had another assist, a primary assist on Daniel Sprong's first period uh, even strength goal. Dylan uh, did have some penalties over the weekend. He had a third period delay game puck over glass penalty on Saturday. But great production from your top defense pairing, Carlson and Dylan, over the weekend. So you love seeing that. Now, when it came to the goaltending this weekend, finally, we saw Ilya Samsonov play. He was the cap starting goaltender on Sunday. First time that he played for the Caps since January 17th. It had been a month and a half since Ilya Samsonov, the guy who was supposed to be the number one goaltender this season, had played for the Cavs. Vitek Vanacek finally uh, given another break here. He was not the Cavs' starting goaltender on Sunday for just the second time in 18 games. Uh, it, it was remarkable. When I saw this, I was like, wow, Samsonov actually going to play the guy uh, for once here on Sunday. And look, with Samsonov, I, I mean, I, I don't want to judge him too harshly because it was the first game in, like I said, a month and a half. He did stop 19 of the 21 shots that he faced. So like, that's not bad if you just look at it uh, that way. But the performance wasn't as good as stopping 19 of 21 shots may indicate. First of all, he really wasn't tested that much. He faced just three high danger shots the entire game per natural stat trick. He did stop all three, but the two goals that he gave up were shots that should have been stopped and shots on which Samsonov was in position to make the stop. So they were two kind of softies. And then came what happened in the final seconds of the game on Sunday. Capster nursing this 3-2 lead. Rebound attempt by Kyle Palmieri misses the net. 
with Samsonov essentially out of the net. Uh, John Carlson was actually in the crease on the goal line behind Samsonov, who had just made a save on a shot by Pavel Zaka. Uh, but some puck luck there as the puck misses the net. Could have been a game-tying goal. Ends up uh, sailing away from the net, and the Caps do hold on for the win. You know, it was tricky with Samsonov these last few weeks because he ended up making actually four rehab starts for the Caps' AHL affiliate Hershey. And it was a mixed scenario for Samsonov in terms of how he did. His first game, he stopped just 24-29 shots. His second game, he stopped 22-23 shots. His third game, last Wednesday evening, he stopped 15 of 19 shots. And then his fourth game, this past Friday night, he stopped 25 of 28 shots. I mean, that's not really a great run for Samsonov over these rehab outings in Hershey. One game, he gives up five goals. Another game, he gives up four goals. Another game, he gives up three goals. So you really didn't know what to expect from him on Sunday. Caps do come away with the win. Like I said, I mean, overall, he stopped 19 of 21. It's hard to complain too much. But, you know, the, the devil is in the details with this stuff. No, no pun intended, given that the Caps won at New Jersey. Uh, and it wasn't, the performance really was kind of mediocre. So uh, we'll see what ends up becoming of Samsonov and really what ends up becoming this goaltending situation because to me, Vanacek is the guy. He's the number one. Laviolette may not say that, but don't pay attention to what is said or isn't said. Pay attention to the actions. Vitek Vanacek, like I said, even with having not played on Sunday, has started 16 of the Caps' last 18 games and he's doing a good job. You know, the, the game on Saturday, the 5-2 win at New Jersey, Vanacek stops 22 or 24 shots. Now, he wasn't tested a bunch in that game. Just high, five high-danger shots faced the entire game per natural stat trick, and he stopped uh, four of them, so he did give up a goal on one of those. But he's been good. Like, overall, especially with how much he's been leaned on, he's done a nice job. But at least for now, it looks like you're back to having the two goaltenders who you were supposed to have for this season, just maybe not in the order we were expecting to have them. But Vitek Vanacek and Ilya Samsonov. Another interesting thing for the game on Sunday for the Caps is they actually did lose the puck possession battle, 34 five-on-five shot attempts to the Devils, 41. But it was a classic case of quantity versus quality. And while the Caps did not win the quantity battle, they did win the quality battle. So like I said, just 34 five-on-five attempts to the Devils, 41. But Natural Statric also had it as the Caps having eight high-danger five-on-five shot attempts to the Devils, too. So, you know, some, a lot of times that's what matters more than just how many shot attempts you get overall, but like how many quality ones, how many high danger ones. Caps quadrupled the Devils in that department, eight to two. Although the Caps in the third period, they did not have a great third period on Sunday, just three five on five shot attempts uh, to the Devils, 12 uh, per natural stat trick. But the Caps are finding ways to win. Like I said, they've played a bunch of games this season at uh, far less than full strength. And yet the Caps get the job done. I mean, that game on Saturday, terrific production in that game from the Caps' fourth line. Garnett Hathaway, Carl Haglin, and Nick Dowd. Haglin in the game had a first period even strength goal for a 1-0 Caps lead. Had a game-high five hits. Had the Caps' fifth best five-on-five shot attempt percentage uh, per natural stat trick. Haglin had two assists in the game to go with the Caps' fourth best five-on-five shot attempt percentage per natural stat trick. And Dowd had a third period empty net goal and went 10-6 and six on faceoffs. So that's always a sign of a good team when you get in production like that from a fourth line. It's obviously something you always want come the postseason where, you know, the grinders, the guys who get dirty and greasy, those are the guys who come through for you in some of those postseason spots. And, you know, we're a ways away from that. But uh, it's really nice to see guys like Hathaway and Haglin and Dowd coming through as they did in that game on Saturday. And I mentioned LaViolette. How about this now with Peter LaViolette? 
So the game on Saturday was the Caps' 20th game of the season. LaViolette, 11-5-4 over his first 20 games as Caps head coach. That tied him with Jim Schoenfeld in 1993-94 for the best 20-game start for a head coach in Caps history in terms of most points. Uh, Schoenfeld also began his tenure in that 93-94 season, during which he replaced Terry Murray, by the way, at 11-5-4. Now, the records are different in that the four in Schoenfeld's 11-5-4 is for ties. The four in LaViolette's 11-5-4 is for overtime slash shootout losses. So it's very confusing in hockey with the way records have changed over the years because the way the NHL has dealt with ties over the years has been altered. But just know this, if you go by points, LaViolette's first 20 games tied for the best start in Caps history for a head coach tying Schoenfeld all the way back in 93-94. LaViolette's doing a nice job. I mean, you know, he's, he's mixing his lines a bunch, but he's he's getting the job done. 12-5-4 for the Caps, alone atop the East. And next up for the Caps, two big games this week at Boston. Caps are at the Bruins Wednesday night at 7, and then back at the Bruins Friday night at 7. We move to the Wizards, who suffered a gut-wrenching loss on Sunday night, although they did win on Saturday night, so we should say that. Wizards uh, beat up on the Minnesota Timberwolves at Capital One Arena Saturday night. 128-112 was the final. It did take a while, but the Wiz ultimately did do what they needed to do against the lowly T-Wolves. Minnesota is awful. Uh, with that game, fell to an NBA worst 7-27 and on the year. It was actually led by just three in the third quarter at 74-71, but then erupted for a 24-8 run for a 98-79 lead and led by double digits for the entire fourth quarter. But then came last night, the Wizards falling to 13-19, and a 111-110 loss at the Boston Celtics. And it's not just what happened, it's how what happened happened. Look, the Wizards still have been so much better since the awful start. 10-7, and since the 3-12 and start, but that loss at the Celtics on Sunday night, that, that it's like, that, that's like a classic Denny Green loss, you know? They are who we thought they were, and we let them off the hook. They are who we thought they were, and we let them off the hook. That's exactly what happened. There's, there's no two ways about it. The Wizards actually overcame an 11-point third-quarter deficit, but blew a 5-point lead with 46.9 seconds left in the fourth quarter. Up by five, 46.9 to play. You blow the lead and you lose the game. The Wizards, over the final 46.9 seconds of the game, allowed three Jason Tatum driving layups, saw Russell Westbrook miss a three, saw Bradley Beal commit an out-of-bounds turnover by slipping and falling on the baseline while being trapped by two Celtics with 12.4 seconds left. Now, That Bradley Beal turnover, which was a killer turnover, that to me, you put at least some of that on Scott Brooks. Scott Brooks should have called a timeout. He did not. I mean, to his credit, he did admit during his virtual postgame press conference that he should have called a timeout. But that's awful late game execution by the coach and by the team. You got to call a timeout in that spot. He doesn't. Beal has got to figure something out in that spot. And look, I mean, he slipped uh, apparently on a wet spot. So, I mean, there's not much you can do about that. But that's a turnover that just can't happen. But, you know, the giving up of the three Jason Tatum driving layups, that was as bad as anything. Wizards actually didn't do that bad of a job on Tatum in the game. He went just three of ten on threes. 
but he went 9-12 on twos, finished with 31 points, 8 rebounds, 3 assists versus 4 turnovers, and 3 steals. But the game was there to be won, and you lost. You let them off the hook. They are who we thought they were, and we let them off the hook. Exactly, Denny. Thank you. Beal, after the game, quote, some of the goofiest S I've ever seen in my life. We should have won that game, end quote. Yes, you should have. Uh, Wizards did get beaten up on the boards, out-rebounded by 13-49-36, including 13-7 on the offensive glass. Tristan Thompson, on his own, had six offensive rebounds in just 18 minutes, 39 seconds as a starter. So Thompson of the Celtics had six offensive rebounds. The Wizards, as a team, totaled seven offensive rebounds. So that was a problem. Wizards also were very good uh, when it came to shooting threes, 9-32 for the game. But there was just, there was so much with this game that was like, okay, the Wizards should win. Uh, The Wizards, first of all, they've been playing well, right? The Wizards lose this game despite Jalen Brown not playing due to left knee soreness. The Celtics' best player did not play on Sunday night. Uh, The Wizards lost despite overall, like I said, playing pretty good defense. Uh, Wizards held the Celtics to 10 of 30 on threes. Wizards generated 19 Celtics turnovers. Wizards totaled 10 steals and five blocks, kind of continuing this theme of, no, the Wizards' defense not being outstanding or anything like that, but it has been better. You go back to the win over Minnesota on Saturday night. Wizards' defense in that game was solid. Held the T-Wolves to just 11-35 on threes. Held Carl Anthony Towns to just 7-19 of 19 shooting and five turnovers. And Towns did put up some numbers on Saturday night, but overall, you hold him to 7-19 shooting, five turnovers, you'll, you'll take that. Wizards did do that to Towns. On Saturday night, Wizards lost at Boston despite a monster game for Bradley Beal. So Beal, 46 points on Sunday night. And yet this was his 11th consecutive loss when scoring at least 40 points. That is the longest such streak in NBA history. I mean, think about that for a moment. Each of the last 11 times Bradley Beal has scored at least 40 points, (laughs) the Wizards have lost. That's hard to do, man. 40 points or more from your best player, and you go 0-11 over 11 straight games when that's the case? Like, it'd be one thing if it was like, I don't know, 4-7 and or even 3-8. and It's 0-11, 11 straight losses for the Wiz when Beal scores at least 40. The damn Washington Wizards! Yes, that's exactly what that Stephen A. Smith soundbite was designed for an 11 game losing streak when Bradley Beal scores at least 40 that's unbelievable when you really think about that look Beal was awesome offensively once again on Sunday night three of six on threes 13 of 23 on twos 11 of 12 on free throws he also had seven rebounds two assists and two steals did have five turnovers you know of course you know the killer one late in the game Beal has had some turnovers this year that's true but my god I mean how good has he been offensively game in and game out was very good in the win over Minnesota on Saturday night just two of six on threes but 10 of 17 on twos eight of eight on free throws 34 points eight boards six assists versus three turnovers he scored the 34 by the way in just 30 minutes 27 seconds of playing time and Beal erupted in the third quarter on Saturday night like I said the game actually was close for a while against Minnesota Wizards dominate the third quarter 44-29 Beal in that third quarter 17 points four assists versus no turnovers and among the many highlights for Beal in that period a spectacular driving reverse layup to beat Carl Anthony Towns to give the Wizards an eight-point lead 
at 81-73. But, you know, Beal was good on Sunday night. Davies Bertans was good on Sunday night. And really over the weekend in general, uh, Bertans at the Celtics, 5-9 on threes, 20 points off the bench. Bertans in the win over Minnesota. Remember, he'd missed the previous game, the win at Denver last Thursday night due to right knee soreness. Comes back on Saturday night and has one of his best games of the season. I mean, go figure. 5 of 11 on threes, 19 points, 4 rebounds, 2 steals, and a game best plus minus rating of plus 24 off the bench. So Bertans has been a big disappointment this year. Misses a game due to right knee soreness. And then since then, 5 of 11 on threes and then 5 of 9 on threes on Saturday night. So a very good weekend for Davies Bertans. It's actually kind of a sneaky, encouraging thing uh, from the last few days here with the Wizards. In terms of Russell Westbrook, look, he was mixed at Boston. Uh, just 1 of 5 on threes, just 4 assists versus 5 turnovers. But he did go 9 of 17 on twos. Did finish with 24 points and 11 rebounds. And Westbrook on Saturday night in the win over Minnesota, look, another night on which he doesn't really shoot that well, just 7-19, also went just 5-10 on free throws, also had five more turnovers. But another triple-double for Westbrook on Saturday night, his 10th in 24 games with the Wizards, 19 points, 14 rebounds, and 12 assists to go with two steals. So the all-time leader in career regular season triple-doubles is Daryl Walker at 15, uh, in terms of the Bullet slash Wizards franchise, Daryl Walker at 15, Westbrook already with 10 in just his first season with the Wizards. And by the way, this is one of these triple doubles for Westbrook on Saturday night that he got over the first three quarters. Uh, it was the 46th career triple double for Westbrook through three quarters, which is pretty amazing when you think about that. Anyway, uh, look, Sunday night, I mean, I, I'm not, I can't go nuts over the loss at the Celtics. Again, the Wizards have been so much better here lately. W- one big thing, though, from Sunday night was beyond Beal Westbrook and Bertans, nobody did anything, okay? Beal Westbrook and Bertans at Boston combined for 90 points on 31 to 60 shooting. The rest of the Wizards, a mere 20 points on 7 to 24 shooting. So it was a disappointing game when it came to secondary scoring. Uh, you got nothing from a lot of guys who've been contributing various things at various points. Uh, Denny Avdia, very interestingly, on Sunday night, plays for just six minutes, 46 seconds off the bench. His minutes end up going to Isak Banga, who goes 0-5 on threes off the bench. Uh, Garrison Matthews and Mo Wagner continue to start. Not a guy did anything. Uh, Matthews had a minus 15 rating in 15.56 as a starter. Wagner, a minus 12 rating in 12.34 as a starter. You know, it was an off night for a lot of these guys, not named Beal Westbrook and Bertans, but, you know, some of these guys have contributed during the winning. Like Wagner on Saturday night was good. 12 points in less than 12 minutes of playing time. And actually, Wagner, I didn't realize this till this past weekend. So Wagner Saturday night drew a charge on Carl Anthony Towns late in the second quarter. Do you know Wagner through games on Saturday was fourth in the NBA in charges drawn per game. I, I did not realize that until I saw that. So that's a that's a sneaky cool thing uh, to be top five in. And when it came to Matthews, he was good on Saturday night. Uh, three or four on threes, 18 points, nine rebounds in 28-21 as a starter. So like I said, it can't be that upset with the Wizards losing this game at Boston. Again, it's just like the lost opportunity. Like what could have been, what should have been. You're up by five with 46.9 seconds left and you're unable to close the door. But still, but still, you're talking about seven wins over the last nine games for the Wizards. You're talking about this team being 13 and 19, just two and a half games behind the Charlotte Hornets for eighth in the East, just three and a half games behind the New York Knicks for fourth in the East. Cannot emphasize this enough. The East stinks. The Wizards should benefit from that stinkitude. Wizards are home to Memphis Tuesday night at seven. 
the damn Washington Wizards. We move to college hoops. The month of February has become the month of March. That is, of course, the month of the NCAA tournament. And the Maryland Terrapins will be making the NCAA tournament. I feel fully confident in saying that now. Don't worry. There is no jinx that is being imposed on the Terps by saying that. There's no bad juju, bad karma that's being generated by uttering that. The Maryland Terrapins are going to the NCAA tournament. If it wasn't already a foregone conclusion, it is now. Maryland on Sunday afternoon gets to 15-10 and 10 overall and 9-9 nine and nine in the Big Ten with a dominant 73-55 win over Michigan State at Xfinity Center. This is now five consecutive victories for the Terps. This is now the Terps being 8-4 and four in the Big Ten since the 1-5 and five start in conference play. The Terps are going to the NCAA tournament. Now, truth be told, it felt like Maryland's previous game, that 68-59 win at Rutgers uh, the previous Sunday afternoon, February 21st, it felt like that game was kind of the game that locked up an NCAA tournament berth for the Terps. But if that wasn't the case, then certainly this win over the Spartans on Sunday afternoon did just that. Maryland, as of games through Sunday, 29th in Division I in the NCAA's net rankings, which is the uh, NCAA evaluation tool rankings. That's that ranking system that the NCAA adopted a few years ago to replace the RPI. So your top 30 in the net and your top 30 in KenPalm.com's rankings. Maryland, number 26 in Division One for KenPalm.com through games on Sunday. And speaking of Ken Palm, how about this? Maryland, through games on Sunday, has faced the third toughest schedule in the country in terms of average adjusted defensive efficiency. So it's not just that Maryland has won games. It's that Maryland, of course, is playing in certainly what I believe, and I know many of you believe, is the best conference of the country this season, the Big Ten. And quantifiably, Maryland has faced a brutal schedule of opposing defenses, and yet is 9-9 nine and nine in the Big Ten, 15-10 and 10 overall. And you got to say this, and I know this is painful for some people, but give Mark Turgeon a lot of credit. Give the Turge his props. You know, I've been very blunt when it's come to Mark Turgeon. I think Mark Turgeon has been a decent coach. I don't think he's been anything special, okay? And the body of work has screened that. There just has not been a lot of high achievement for him over his time as Terps head coach. And that time is now into a decade. This is year number 10 for Mark Turgeon as Maryland's head coach. You know, you have just one appearance in the Sweet 16 during that time. That's it. Maryland now, under the Turge this season, is having the kind of season that good coaches have, i.e. expectations for this season were not particularly high. This is not an overly talented team. You know, this is not a team that is oozing multiple obvious NBA players. This is a team that got off to a bad start, again, one and five in the conference, and yet this is a team that's gotten a lot better as the season has gone on. What's the thing we all used to say about Gary Williams, and it's maybe the best thing, maybe was the best thing about him as a head coach. His teams almost always got better as seasons went on. Gary's teams in November and December were never the same as Gary's teams in February and March, i.e. those teams got better as time went on. That's almost always a sign of good coaching, that you get your players better as seasons go on. Well, Mark Turgeon has done that with this team this season. There's no doubt about that. And it couldn't have come at a better time for Mark Turgeon. Let's be honest about this. That mega contract extension that he signed all the way back in October 2016, that runs through just the 2022-2023 season. This was looked upon by a lot of people as kind of a make-or-break year 
for the Turds of, look, they got to extend him or they got to fire him because the way it works in college basketball, you don't want some sort of lame duck scenario. It's terrible for recruiting. Like if a guy is not under contract for multiple seasons to come, that's a problem. And so it really felt like this year was going to go a long way toward determining what would end up happening with Mark at Maryland. Well, now what are you going to do? They're not going to fire him after this year. Like he's having a really good year. And, you know, we'll see what the NCAA tournament ends up bringing. But any notion of, well, they're just going to kind of let that contract go and they're not going to extend him further. And maybe they even end up parting ways with him after the season. Uh, that's not happening. The Turge ain't going nowhere. This really is in a lot of ways a how do you like me now kind of year for the Turge. Because like I said, he's doing the thing that Gary Williams used to do, overachieving, making his team better as the season goes on. And this really was one of the Terps' best wins of the season, this victory over Michigan State on Sunday. You know, the Terps defeated a Michigan State team that had won three straight, including two wins over top five teams. Michigan State, just this past Tuesday night, 81-72 win over number five, Illinois. And then on Thursday night, a 71-67 win over number four, Ohio State. So a Michigan State team that had won three straight, including the last two of her top five teams, Maryland ends up shredding on Sunday to the tune of an 18-point victory. Just an awesome job. Maryland never trailed in the game, began it on an 11-0 run, and never looked back. I mean, there's really not a lot to talk about in terms of like the drama with the game. Uh, The Terps lead in the second half, never less than five. And Maryland, upon seeing that lead get cut to five at 49-44, erupted for a 24-11 run to end the game. Just an outstanding job. And in terms of why this is happening, where this improvement is coming from, there is no mystery. It is all about Maryland's defense. The Terps' defense has been outstanding this season. Uh, You could argue it was never better than it was on Sunday. Maryland did not allow Michigan State to score a point until more than six minutes into the game. I mean, Maryland was pitching a shutout more than six minutes into the game, uh, ended up holding Sparty to 33.3% shooting, including just eight for 28 on threes. And Maryland mostly played defense without fouling. You know, that, that can be a tricky thing sometimes. Like, yeah, the defense is good, but you're sending the uh, opposition to the line a bunch. Michigan State had just 15 free throw attempts the entire game and ended up making just nine of them. This is one of the things, again, that Turgeon does do well. Uh, the, the problem with Mark Turgeon's Maryland teams has been offense, not really defense. Uh, Turgeon pretty much year in and year out has his teams playing good defense, and this season has been no exception. Maryland threw games on Sunday, second in the Big Ten in field goal percentage defense, second in the Big Ten in scoring defense, uh, i.e. fewest points allowed per game. It's, it's just been a great job. Now, the guy who, of course, leads the defense for Maryland is the senior, Daryl Morsell. And how about the latest warrior-like effort from him uh, in this game here? So Daryl Morsell did not practice at all. Uh, last week off what happened to him the previous Sunday, that win at Rutgers. Darryl Morsell in that game dealt with a right shoulder issue that featured the shoulder perturgent having to twice be popped back into place. Well, luckily for Maryland, no game last week, right? You went Sunday to Sunday without playing a game. Morsell doesn't practice, ends up playing against Michigan State, ends up being part of another stellar defensive effort. I mean, he's out there for 34 minutes as a starter. And he contributes offensively too, 11 points, four or five shooting, three rebounds, three assists versus one turnover. Daryl Morsell, if he doesn't get Big Ten Defensive Player of the Year, is unquestionably on the short list for Big Ten Defensive Player of the Year. And if you're talking about like who is the heart and soul of this Maryland team, it's Morsell. And it's not even a conversation. Uh, This is a guy who literally broke his face earlier in the year 
ended up missing just one game. Here he is having to have his shoulder pop back into place twice, and he doesn't miss up any, doesn't end up missing any time in terms of any missed games uh, because of that. So another great job by Morcel. Uh, Terps offensively, they, they shot the ball well, 48.8%, including 8 of 16 on threes. Got some good minutes from Hakeem Hart, 2 of 3 on threes. Jarris Hamilton went 2 of 2 on threes. Uh, Eric Ayala just went a 5 on threes, but 3 of 6 on twos and 13 of 13 on free throws. Do you know Eric Ayala was one made free throw away in this game from tying the Terps record for most made free throws in a game uh, without a miss? The immortal Jerry Greenspan in 1960 for Maryland went 14 for 14 on free throws. But Ayala overall was good again, 22.6 rebounds, three assists, just one turnover. Aaron Wiggins just one of three on threes, but he had 13 points and six boards. Dante Scott, one of two on three, seven points, eight rebounds, five assists, just two turnovers. It's a great job by Maryland. There's no two ways about it. The Terps are going to the NCAA tournament. And this is, you know, it's a funny deal in sports, right? Because Maryland has had teams with heavy expectations, and those teams have either disappointed or ended up just not being as great as it felt like they could have been like that sweet 16 team for Turgeon, the 2015, 2016 team, the diamond stone team. That to me is a classic case of, it's not that that was a bad team. You know, it's not like that team was like a huge disappointment, but it just felt like that team was never as good as it could have been. This is a team that wasn't supposed to be good. And yet is proving to be quite good. And sometimes it's those kind of teams that end up doing the best. Like I I think the 2019 nationals are an example of that. The 2019 Nats, that was not the best Nats team of the last 10 years, but it's the team that did the best. You know, it's a team, remember, that made the postseason as a wild card, had to rally to do so from 19 and 31, ends up winning a World Series. And who knows? Maybe this Maryland team, low expectations, you know, no obvious NBA player, that's the team that ends up authoring a deep NCAA tournament run. It's great to see, though. It's exciting to see. Two regular season games left for the Terps at Northwestern Wednesday night at 9, home to Penn State on Sunday. So Maryland is going to the NCAA tournament. Georgetown, I think you still have to say, is not. But the Hoyas do continue to be better. Georgetown on Saturday afternoon gets to 8-11 and overall, 6-8 and in the Big East, a 68-60 win at DePaul. Now, look, DePaul isn't anything special, all right? DePaul, in fact, is one of the worst teams in Division One. DePaul came into the game 2-11 and in the Big East, and this was a game. Hoyas were horrendous offensively in the first half, led by just one at 30-29 early in the second half, but Georgetown then exploded for an 18-0 run and ended up leading by double digits for most of the rest of the game. But here's the thing with Georgetown now. Six Big East wins on the season. That's actually more than Georgetown had all of last season. Georgetown last year, just five Big East wins the entire season. Five and 14 in conference play if you count the Big East tournament. So if you're searching for signs of progress, that would be one that you already have surpassed your Big East win total uh, from last season, this season. But the Hoyas, when it comes to making the NCAA tournament, still in a tough spot. Uh, through games on Sunday, just 96th in Division One in the NCAA's net rankings, just 89th in Division One per Kempom.com. So you're still looking at a scenario where you got to win out in the regular season and then do some damage in the Big East tournament. But th- this was a win. I mean, look, like I said, DePaul isn't very good, but Georgetown did play this game without arguably its best player. No Javon Blair on Saturday afternoon due to a coach's decision, as Patrick Ewing put it after the game. And Patrick would not elaborate, so presumably 
it's some kind of disciplinary issue. Uh, the Hoyas' best player in the game ended up being Trudier Bile. He was outstanding for Georgetown. Two of five on threes, 19 points, 10 rebounds, including six offensive boards, three assists versus one turnover and two steals. Jamarco Pickett had a bad first half, just two points, but in the second half, three of four on threes, 12 points. Uh, also finished with six rebounds and a couple of blocks. Dante Harris didn't shoot the ball well in the first half, but better in the second half. He finished with 14 points, five assists versus four turnovers. So we'll see with Georgetown. The good news for the Hoyas would be this. The two remaining regular season games are against teams better than them in the Ken Palm rankings. So Georgetown is home to Xavier Tuesday night at 7. Xavier through Sunday, 54th via KenPalm.com. And then the Hoyas conclude the regular season at UConn Saturday at noon. The Huskies are 29th in the country per KenPalm.com. So if you can sweep those games, and that's a big if, but if you can do that, you do start to wonder if maybe there is some hope here for the Hoyas to make it. But there's work to be done for sure. And I don't think you can just sweep the rest of the regular season and say Georgetown's in. You got to sweep the rest of the regular season and then win at least a couple of games uh, in the Big East tournament. So we will see. There is a pulse for Georgetown when it comes to tournament play. But otherwise, you're still likely looking at a sixth straight year in which Georgetown doesn't make the NCAA tournament. But the Hoyas are competing and they're at least making things pseudo-interesting as their season goes on. So I promised you last week on the podcast that I would be talking Virginia and Virginia Tech basketball as we got into the month of March, and it's time to deliver on at least half of that promise as the Hokies. They got themselves another win over the weekend. On Saturday, number 16 Virginia Tech, and 84-46 smashing of Wake Forest at Castle Coliseum in Blacksburg, the Hokies get themselves to 15-5 and overall, 9-4 and in the ACC. Now it's bounce, a nice bounce back for Tech uh, off that 69-53 home loss to Georgia Tech the previous Tuesday night. Hokies have had a very good season. Uh, like I said, 16th in the country. Now, the advanced rankings aren't nearly as kind, but Virginia Tech is going to the NCAA tournament. Hokies, uh, as of games through Sunday, 45th in Division One in the net rankings, 45th in Division One per KenPalm.com. So, you know, they're not going to get Virginia Tech, barring, uh, you know, a collapse from some other teams and just Tech destroying its remaining competition, you know, say like a four seed. But, you know, I think you're looking at like a five or a six seed for Virginia Tech in the NCAA tournament. And truth be told, you know, seeding doesn't matter nearly as much as some people like to make it out to be. So, you know, if you're a six and not a four, I don't know that that's really that big of a deal. Especially, you know, if you look at Virginia Tech and you kind of big picture things, I mean, Virginia Tech is a program that not long ago had made the NCAA tournament just once in 20 seasons, just twice in 30 seasons. Then came the three consecutive NCAA tournament appearances, 2016-2017 through 2018-2019. Obviously, no tournament last year, but here you have Virginia Tech poised to make the NCAA tournament again this season. But dominant win over Wake on Saturday. Uh, it was senior day for Virginia Tech. Uh, Wake is not good, 3-13 and 13 now in the ACC. But the Hokies, they, they never trailed in the game, led at the half by 27 at 49-22. Held Wake Forest to just 27.3% shooting, including, how about this, just five made twos the entire game. Wake Forest the entire game made just five two-pointers, and Tech shot lights out 53.4% including 13-24 on threes. There are a lot of good players on this Tech team. This kid, Keve Aluma, is really good. 5-5 five five on threes, 23 points, 8 rebounds, 2 blocks in just 20 minutes as a starter. Uh, through games on Saturday, Aluma, 7th in the ACC in points per game, 8th in the ACC 
in field goal percentage, sixth in the ACC in rebounds per game, eighth in the ACC in block shots per game. Uh, another kid, Naheem Aleen, uh, he on Saturday goes three of six on threes, 13 points, five rebounds, five assists, three turnovers. Tech's point guard is Wasiba Beatty, five assists versus one turnover on Saturday. He threw games on Saturday, third in the ACC in assist-to-turnover ratio. And back playing for Tech is Tyrese Radford, who went through basically a month-long suspension. He got arrested in late January, was found guilty of DUI, pled no contest to carrying a concealed weapon. There's actually some controversy of whether the head coach, Mike Young, should have welcomed back Radford to the program. But hey, Tech's a top 20 team looking to make a deep run of the tournament. You can bet Tyrese Radford is going to be welcomed back uh, onto the team. Radford was good on Saturday. Two or two on threes, 15.6 rebounds, two assists, and no turnovers. Two regular season games left for Tech. Home to Louisville Wednesday night at 7 at NC State Saturday afternoon at 2. You're playing out the string at this point from a standpoint of Tech in the regular season and even the ACC tournament. Uh, what you're looking at here if you're a Hokies fan is how good is this season going to end up being? How deep can this Tech team go? Because this is a Tech team. It can shoot the three. It plays good defense. There's, there aren't many nits to pick with this Virginia Tech team. You wouldn't call it one of the best teams in the country but you would call it one of the best, say, 2025 teams in the country. And if you're in that mix, there's no reason you can't make a deep run in the tournament. All right, so we're going to close out this installment of the Al Galdi podcast, Talking Baseball, because on Sunday, we had the start of the exhibition season in Major League Baseball. The Grapefruit League season has begun for the Nationals and Orioles down in Florida. And no, we're not going to break down pitch by pitch, inning by inning, uh, what happened in these exhibition games. Truth be told, baseball exhibition games are painful, uh, but there are some interesting things that emerge from these games from time to time. And specific to the Nats and O's on Sunday, there were a few things you want to be mindful of. So with the Nats, a four-all tie with the St. Louis Cardinals on Sunday. And there are two things from this game you want to be aware of if you're a Nats fan. So number one, Eric Fetty was the starting pitcher. Uh, Eric Fetty, once again, is battling Joe Ross and Austin Voth for the fifth spot in the Nats rotation. We know what one through four is going to be. Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg, Patrick Corbin, John Lester. The question is, who will be the fifth starter? Ross versus Fetty versus Voth. If that sounds familiar, it should. This has been going on for years now. These three guys, these same three people fighting for the fifth spot in a Nats rotation. We will all be old and gray, and it will still be Ross versus Fetty versus both for the fifth spot uh, in the Nationals rotation. Now, uh, everyone believes that Joe Ross has the inside track on that number five spot. Eric Fetty's going to have to really impress in spring training to get that fifth spot. He was not overly impressive on Sunday. Uh, Eric Fetty ended up giving up one run in one inning. He gave up a single, two walks into wild pitch. He threw just 12 of his 28 pitches for strikes. Now, the damage could have been much worse. Fetty did do a nice job of getting out of that inning without giving up more damage, but it was not an overly impressive inning, like I said. And, you know, with Fetty, he's he's battling from behind in this battle. You know, Eric Fetty, he's been a disappointment. There's no other way to say it. He's going into his age 28 season. He is still not a fixture in the Nats rotation of having been the 18th overall pick in the 2014 draft. In his career over four major league seasons, 194 innings, he's got an ERA of 510. He's got a whip of 151. I mean, that's that's not good. You know, it's not what a top 20 pick is supposed to end up being. Now, in fairness to Fetty, 
he has been jerked around, okay? They've toggled him between bullpen and rotation. You know, they've yo-yoed him back and forth from being a reliever to a starter, then back to a reliever, then back to a starter. So it has been a, a, a tricky deal for him in terms of like trying to find his footing and what his role is at the major league level. But ultimately, your job as a pitcher is to get outs. You know, it doesn't matter how you use. It doesn't matter when you used. You need to retire batters. You need to be a provider of what we like to call run prevention. And Fetty just hasn't been that. He's also not a strikeout pitcher, which is another thing that hurts him. His strikeouts per nine innings over the last two seasons is a microscopic 4.8. I mean, these days, truly, you want your pitchers to be averaging more than a strikeout per inning. This guy's averaging 4.8 strikeouts per nine innings. So, you know, your control has got to be pinpoint if you're going to succeed at the major league level with a strikeout rate like that. And Fetty's control too often has not been. So we'll see what ends up becoming of this battle for the fifth spot. But, you know, I would say it's going to be Ross and Fetty, I don't think, did anything on Sunday to truly change anyone's mind. Now, the other thing from this game of the Nats was the lineup. Dave Martinez's lineup, very interestingly, had Victor Robles in the leadoff spot, Andrew Stevenson, the right fielder, in the number two spot, Juan Soto didn't play, and Trey Turner in the number three spot. There's been a lot of discussion about what is the lineup going to end up looking like. I think 100% Juan Soto should be the number two batter and certainly no lower than the number three batter. So I was actually very encouraged by this because, like I said, Soto didn't play. Stevenson played right. Presumably, Stevenson was right where Juan Soto is going to end up being. Most good teams bat their best batters in that number two spot. So that's what Soto is, clearly. He's the number one hitter on the Nats. He's the number one hitter maybe in all of baseball. So he, to me, should be in that two spot. Get him as many plate appearances as you realistically can this year. The lower you put someone in the lineup, the fewer plate appearances he has over the course of a year. In case you don't know, I've talked about this many times in the past. Each spot in a batting order is worth 17 plate appearances over the course of a 162-game season. So if you bat a guy, you know, fourth instead of second, understand you're costing that guy 34 plate appearances over the course of a year. If you do as Dusty Baker did in 2017 and bat Anthony Rendon sixth when he should be batting, say, second, you're costing him a truckload of plate appearances over the course of a year. So I don't want Juan Soto to be any lower than third, and I really would like for him to be second. And this lineup that Davey Martinez had on Sunday certainly was an indication of that. And I don't have an issue with Trey Turner batting third. Trey Turner was an excellent batter in 2020. He was quantifiably the best hitting shortstop in the sport in 2020. Having him in that number three spot is perfectly fine. The issue is, well, who's going to be your leadoff guy? You want that guy in the number one spot to be a high on base guy, and the Nats don't really have that beyond Soto and Trey Turner. Juan Soto and Trey Turner were the Nats' two best power hitters in 2020. They also were the Nats' two best on base guys in 2020. Ideally, it is Robles. And so I'm fine with Davey giving Victor Robles a shot at it, but he's got to validate that. And you can't play little games here. Like Robles, if it's not working, you got to be willing to pull the plug. Now, it's a it's a fine line you got to walk, right? Because you don't want to just have him out there for a week as your leadoff guy come the regular season. He's not getting the job done. And then you yank him. Like you want to give him time to kind of develop and figure it out. But on the other hand, you got to recognize what has gone on here with Victor Robles. He has been a disappointment as a batter so far in his major league career. You know, it's it's interesting thing with Robles because it was Robles who was the higher touted prospect in terms of Robles versus Soto a few years back. Soto has blown the door off any and all expectations people had for him 
as a major league player. Robles was an outstanding defender, especially in 2019. Defense plummeted in 2020 due to him bulking up the previous offseason. Hopefully the defense gets back to being elite in 2021. But Robles as a hitter, he just really hasn't yet blossomed. Victor Robles in 2020 was brutal as a batter. He had a 220 batting average, a 293 on base percentage, a 315 slugging percentage. Uh, Victor Robles, you look at what he's done over 899 career regular season Major League Plate appearances coming into 2021 here, career on base percentage of 320. I mean, it's just not that good. And, you know, with Robles, he had these uh, brief stints at the Major League level in 2017 and 2018. Actually did fairly well offensively over those two years. But these last two years, 2019, 2020, the offense just hasn't been very good. Like the hitting just hasn't been very good. His on base over the last two years is just 318. You want your leadoff guy to have an on base like in the 340s, 350s at least. So he's got to really improve upon that. And here's another thing too with Robles. A lot of him getting on base in his career so far has not been via getting hits or drawing walks. It's been by getting hit by pitches, which is, I mean, it's a nice skill to have. I mean, it's kind of comical, the frequency with which the guy gets hit by pitches. He's been hit 34 times by pitches, Robles has, over the last two years. But it's not really something you can continue to count on. And it's also kind of dangerous, right? I mean, you can get hurt getting hit by pitches, on the regular. So he's got to improve his plate discipline and he's just got to be better as a hitter. And he's got the tools to be a good hitter. I, I do believe that there's still a path by which Victor Robles ends up being the hitter we thought he was going to be. But I'll say this about Robles too. If this ends up being a third consecutive underwhelming slash disappointing offensive season for him, I think the conversation shifts and it stops being about when Victor Robles is going to emerge as a quality batter. And it starts becoming, this is who Victor Robles is as a batter. You know, this is the way things went, if you remember, with Michael A. Taylor and Danny Espinosa, where they were two excellent defensive players, and we kind of kept waiting on them to become good hitters, and it never happened. And, and the truth is, if it's not happening for you two, three years into your major league career, there's a really good chance it's just not going to happen. So I don't want to write Robles off, you know, but I do think this is a big year for him especially offensively. Like, this is when we should really start to see Victor Robles do as a hitter the things we all felt like he could do when he came to the major league level. He's going into his age 24 season, and it looks for now like he's got the first crack at being the Nats' everyday leadoff man. And then there are the Orioles. And I've got a lot of requests from you guys to talk Orioles. And so I will be talking O's on this podcast. We'll talk Nationals and Orioles. You know, in the DMV, there are still many O's fans. Washington, D.C. is a national city, no doubt. But within the DMV area, there are still many Orioles fans. There are still a lot of people like myself, you know, children of the 80s and uh, 90s who grew up with no major league team in Washington, D.C., and so you became an O's fan, you know, because you weren't sure if Washington, D.C. was going to ever get a team. Now, with the O's, it's very different than it is with the Nats. The O's are very much a rebuilding team. The O's have tanked and tanked hard over the last few years, and by the way, I think that has 100% been the right approach. If you're an O's fan, you should very much like the work that is being done. Now, it is painful, no question, and there's been a lot of losing, no question, but what Mike Elias has started here as executive vice president and general manager, this all-in approach with analytics, something that the O's were in dire need of doing, this is the way that you do it. 
this purifying of the roster, this total teardown in order to build it back up the right way, the proper way, the modern way. This is what needed to be done. You know, the Orioles under Buck Walter and Dan Duquette no doubt had success, three playoff appearances in five years, but that success in a lot of ways was a house of cards, and there was a, a flukish nature to it. There was a lack of sustainability to it. The O's ignored the Latin American market. The O's weren't nearly in on analytics like good teams need to be. Buck and Dan couldn't stand each other, okay? That never got talked about or written about, but there was a real toxic nature uh, to the Orioles in terms of management in those Buck Showalter, Dan Duquette years. It wasn't going to last. It didn't last. And remember, when it collapsed, it collapsed hard. The O's in 2018 in the final season of the Buck-Dan era, 47 and 115, the worst season in Orioles history. And things, from a record standpoint, really haven't gotten much better since then, right? 54 and 108 in 2019. Last year, the O's were kind of fun for a while. Did get off to a 12 and 8 start, but ended up going 13 and 27 after that 12 and 8 start to finish up 25 and 35. So the prism through which we view the 2021 Orioles isn't, are they going to contend? Or is the bullpen going to be good? Or has the lineup looking when compared to the lineups for the likes of the Yankees and the Rays and the American League East? Like, no, we're not We're not looking at things that way. We're looking at where we at with the rebuild and where we headed with the prospects and how soon truly until the O's are back to being halfway decent again. Now, O's begin their Grapefruit League season on Sunday with a with a 6-4 loss to the Pittsburgh Pirates. And the big item coming out of this game was the return of Trey Mancini. Trey Mancini missed all of the 2020 season due to colon cancer. He comes back, is playing on Sunday, and in one of the great scenes already of spring training in 2021, gets a standing ovation as he's making his first plate appearance, and he gets a single. And his first plate appearance. Really cool moment. Really heartwarming moment. Everyone loves Trey Mancini. But here's the thing, okay? If you are Mike Elias, if you are the Orioles, and you're doing this rebuild, you've got to be cold-blooded. And you cannot become emotionally attached to anyone. And the truth about Trey Mancini in 2021 is this. He should be traded. And I hope that he's traded. And I say that meaning not that who cares about Trey Mancini? I say that meaning Trey Mancini is a good player. He has value. The O's should maximize that value and get back more prospects, continue the sell-off, and continue, like I said, the purifying of the roster. Trey Mancini in 2019 was terrific. 154 games, 679 plate appearances. He had a 291 batting average, a 364 on base percentage, a 535 slugging percentage. Trey Mancini in 2019 a 4.1 offensive wins above replacement per baseball reference. Trey Mancini has value, people, okay? But the thing about Trey Mancini is he's going into his age 29 season. He's due to be a free agent after the 2022 season. Trey Mancini may be long gone via free agency by the time the Orioles truly get good again. Why wait for that? Trey Mancini is nearing his 30s, okay? Trade him now, or at the very least, trade him this season. You got two years of team control left. He's coming off, when it comes to his last full season, a great season. This is the time to deal him. You know, the O's blew it with the likes of Manny Machado, where they waited too long to trade him, ended up getting back pennies on the dollar for him. Don't make that same mistake with Trey Mancini. And I'm not saying that Mancini is necessarily Machado's equal, but you get the idea. You got to trade a guy 
when he's got great value, not when the value is diminishing and he's about to go into free agency as Machado was after that 2018 season. Now, the good news is I think Mike Elias very much knows what he's doing. And I think Mike Elias is more than open to pulling the trigger on a trading away a Trey Mancini. But if you're an Orioles fan, I really believe this is how you got to look at things. You can't look at it as, well, keep Trey because he's good and he can be a part of the rebuild. Like, no, no, people. You can't look at it that way. He's going to be a free agent after 2022. This is already his age 29 season. He's coming off by far the best season of his career in terms of the last season in which he played. Now's the time to pull the trigger. And again, it's not an indictment of Trey Mancini. It's actually an endorsement of Trey Mancini. He's good. He's got value. So deal him and get something back of consequence for him. I mean, understand what the O's did this offseason. They dealt away or cut ties with a bunch of guys who actually were a part of some of the surprising success of 2020. The shortstop, Jose Iglesias, he was one of the better offensive players on the O's last year. Jose Iglesias had a 956 OPS in 2020. But this season, set to be his age 31 season, the O's in December did what? Traded Iglesias to the Angels for a couple of pitching prospects. You know, Alex Cobb. Alex Cobb finally had a halfway decent season for the Orioles in 2020 off having been a major disappointment uh, since signing that four-year $57 million deal with the O's in March 2018. What did the O's do last month, February? Traded Cobb. Traded Cobb in cash to the Angels for a second base prospect. This kid, Jabai Jones, like, this is what you do now. You have veterans, and if they're good for you, you trade them. You flip them. You know, the O's over the last few weeks here have brought in the likes of Matt Harvey and Felix Hernandez and Wade LeBlanc into camp. They didn't do this to potentially contend in 2021. They didn't do this to, you know, fortify the rotation for 2021. The O's did this to see if they can catch lightning in a bottle with one or more of these guys, rehab these guys, and then trade them. You know, it's like Property Brothers on HGTV. You get a bad house, you fix it up, you sell it for more money. Like, very simple. You know, rehab a Harvey, rehab a Hernandez, rehab a LeBlanc, and then flip them. The O's did this last year, in fact, with Tommy Malone, the former Nats prospect. Signed him to a minor league contract February 2020. He makes six stars for the O's, has a 114 ERA plus, 100 is average, so he's an above league average starting pitcher. And so the O's last August did what? Traded Malone to the Atlanta Braves. So I think 100%, this is the mindset you got to have with Trey Mancini. We'll see if the O's end up dealing him, but I think that is absolutely the way to go. All right, that will do it for you and for me for now. Keep the feedback coming at Al Galdi on Twitter, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com via email. Continue to subscribe, rate, and review. Continue to spread the word about this podcast. Have a great rest of your Monday. I'll talk to you again on Tuesday. They are who we thought they were, and we let them off the hook. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua, and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter, and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film, and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.